Okay, well, welcome for our second session. Welcome back for our second session. For those of you who are joining us online as well, we want to welcome you back to our second session. Um, before we start, would you bow your heads with me for one more word of prayer? Father God, as we cover this next topic about uh, the signs of the times, we just want to ask that you would uh, speak to our hearts. And as we look at the different uh, incredible events that are happening around the world, uh, even though there are many um, questions of concern, we pray that you would give us a cause to hope in you. We pray this in your name. Amen. So the second uh, session is entitled The End of Time. Uh, how do we or what does the Bible have to say about the end of time or signs that are going to happen before the second coming of Christ? And this is kind of a interesting topic that uh, not only is of interest to people in the religious world, but even outside of the religious world. I don't know if you've noticed all the different Hollywood movies that seem to come about every now and then. Um, you know, there was a movie called 2012. Um, actually, there was a... There was, a lot of movies that have to do with the apocalypse. And it's kind of interesting that um, we see more and more movies that take on the apocalyptic theme. And whether it isn't necessarily about the end of the world, it is about what's going to happen um, in the future. And so the Bible actually has a lot to say when it comes to prophecy. And so today we're going to be looking at prophecy. We're going to be looking at what the Bible says about uh, predicting events that are going to take place near the end of um, Earth's history. And so um, what I'm going to invite you to do is open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 24. Matthew chapter 24. And this is a really well-known passage where Jesus talks about future events. And there's an important um, introduction that's given uh, in the first three verses of Matthew chapter 24. So if you have your white Bibles, I'll invite you to turn to page 794. Page 794. And what we're going to see happening is Jesus is going to introduce this um, message of prophecy or prediction in this manner. So starting in verse 1, it says, As Jesus was leaving the temple grounds... His disciples pointed out to him the various temple buildings, but he responded, Do you see all these buildings? I tell you the truth. They will be completely demolished. Not one stone will be left on top of another. Later, Jesus sat on the Mount of Olives. His disciples came to him privately and said, Tell us, when will all this happen? What sign will signal your return and the end of the world? Now, what's interesting here is that Jesus points to all these magnificent buildings in Jerusalem, and he says, these are going to be destroyed. And when the disciples hear that, they automatically assume when the temple is destroyed, the world is coming to an end. And so they ask the question or they frame it in that way. But Jesus actually knows there are two aspects or two parts to this question. One has to do with the signs that are going to take place before the temple or, yeah, before the temple is destroyed. And the second aspect is things that are going to happen before he returns again, which signals the end of time. And so what we're going to find is in this chapter, there's a dual prophecy, a dual prophecy. So first, let's look at the prophecies concerning the temple. And that really starts in Matthew chapter 23 because Jesus spends a bit of time around the temple. And there are a few passages where Jesus actually talks about um, 
the temple being destroyed. And so in Matthew 23, verses 37 and 38, Jesus says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her, how often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. See, your house or the temple is left to you desolate or destroyed. And so Jesus is really foretelling this future event. And for the, for the um, Jewish nation, the temple was central to their life. Their lives revolved around the temple. And so this was kind of a very incredible prophecy or prediction that was being given. If you look at Luke 21, verses 20 and 21, it says, And when you shall see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation is near. Then let them which are in Judea flee to the mountains, and let them which are in the midst of it depart out. And let not them that are in the country regions go into it. So here's this very specific prophecy that's given by Jesus. And he says, when you see Jerusalem surrounded, know that it's bad news, basically. But what's incredible here is Jesus says, then you're going to be able to depart and leave the cities and go free and don't go back into Jerusalem. And here's the peculiar thing about this verse. If Jerusalem is surrounded by an army, how are people going to escape? Basically, you're walking into your death, right? And so here's where this prediction is quite uh, incredible. So here's what actually happens in history. In AD 66, Gessius Florus was the Roman procurator of Judea, and he took a temple tax. And when I say he took a temple tax, he sent his soldiers into the temple treasury, and he pulled out a ton of money. I think it was something like 17 talents of gold, and basically said, we're giving this to Caesar. And when he did that, it infuriated the Jews that lived in Jerusalem. And this is really a lot Many years have gone by where there's just like a tense relationship between the Romans and the Jews. And when Gessius Florus took that temple tax, the Jews revolted and they basically slaughtered the Roman garrison that was stationed in the city. And what happened is the Jewish-Roman war began. Now, obviously the Romans didn't really like that. And so they sent a man named Cestius Gallus and he sent 30,000 soldiers to put an end to the revolt. And history states that they surrounded the city. And basically, with those 30,000 soldiers, Cestius uh, Gallus was not able to break into the city. And so, for some reason, rather than waiting for reinforcements, he kind of pulls his troops back and they head towards the coastline. And so uh, as he withdraws his forces, the Jews opened the city gates and they sent, uh, they sent their, their militia after them. And basically history states that Cestius Gallus was really embarrassingly defeated because he had the upper hand and failed. Now, as the followers of Jesus watched the events taking place, they realized this is what Jesus is talking about. And many of the followers of Jesus left the city of Jerusalem. History shows that they went to this place called Pella. And 
we find in Pella, there's a lot of archaeological evidence of the early Christians um, who kind of resided here. And so there's like, there are different uh, writings and manuscripts of Christian teaching in this place. And it was historically known as a place of refuge. Well, after Cestius Gallus experienced that embarrassing defeat, uh, the Romans were not going to allow uh, the Jewish nation to win. And so Vespian, uh, they, they sent a person named Vespian to deal with the revolt. He attacks the towns and the villages around Jerusalem, and basically he lets people escape the towns and the villages, and he funnels them into Jerusalem. Um, Josephus says that the city was filled with over one million people, and really the idea was that Vespian was trying to just deal with everybody at once and make a statement, you cannot rebel against the Roman Empire and get away with it. Well, what happened is Vespian grew too old to deal with this, and he hires his son Titus, and he tells his son Titus, put an end to this revolt. And so his son Titus besieges Jerusalem in AD 70. And what he does is he builds these rampart walls. An example of this is in a, you see the Romans using this even in Masada as well, because the Jewish revolt kind of, there were other Jewish revolts that took place in other places. And with these rampart walls, they would kind of put soil and mud and stone and logs, and they would build these um, ramps next to fortresses. And what, we're, what we see in Jerusalem is that there are rampart walls that are built all around Jerusalem so that the Romans can actually go over um, the, the fortress walls. And so in Jerusalem, there was a siege for seven months. And what's interesting in Luke chapter 19, verses 41 to 44, it says, Now as he drew near, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, Days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you, and close you in on every side, and level you and your children within you to the ground. So here are these different predictions that are being given. Well, the Jews were losing this battle, and the final stand took place in this fortress called uh, Antoniah. And what's kind of ironic about this is that the Romans built this fortress as a means of protecting themselves in the heart of the city. And basically, the Jews kind of overthrew them, and the Jewish militia used this fortress as their final stand. And uh, this is kind of where um, the revolt was um, finished or finalized. Now, what's interesting is that when it comes to the destruction of the temple, um, the historian Josephus writes that the emperor Titus did not want the temple to be destroyed. And there are different uh, theories about this because scholars were saying, no, of course Titus wanted to destroy the temple. He wanted to make a statement. But the reason why Josephus' account of this um, story is unique is because Josephus is... Uh, Titus's patron, or excuse me, it's the other way around. Um, the emperor Titus is Josephus's patron. He paid Josephus to be his negotiator and his communicator to the Jewish community. And so Josephus is this reputable Jewish historian, and basically um, he acted on the behalf of the Roman Empire. And a lot of the Jews were really unhappy with Josephus because they felt like he was a traitor, but really he was trying to communicate, or he was trying to negotiate peace. And so I think Josephus's 
um, take on this story is very unique where he's saying, listen, Titus actually, or he's saying Titus didn't want to destroy the temple. And what he's saying is that there was this, uh, basically the soldiers were really upset and they just decided, you know what, we're going to destroy this because we know that the Jewish people care about this. And so history states that the temple burnt down and uh, basically it was burned to the ground. And today, if you go to the temple area in Jerusalem, it's just destroyed and you can see evidences of uh, or you can see the last remaining stones uh, basically on the ground littering around the uh, the area of the temple um, and also when it comes to the main area of the temple now the dome of the rock sits on top of it so jesus gave this prediction of what would happen to the temple but there's a second aspect of that prophecy and that's what's going to happen at the end of time and this is the secondary application uh, that we're referring to so jesus gives prophecies in matthew 24 in four areas those areas are or the areas that i'm going to highlight are nature politics social issues and religion so the first thing that we're going to talk about is nature in Matthew chapter 24, verse 7, Jesus says, and there will be earthquakes in various places. Now, earthquakes are measured by certain magnitudes. And uh, I found this little cartoon uh, where it kind of tells you this is what a magnitude 5 earthquake looks like all the way down to a magnitude 7 earthquake. And it doesn't mention what a magnitude 8 earthquake would look like because there would be no more animals. And so what I have here is um, you can go to a geological uh, website and, and look at earthquake statistics. And I've just basically numbered the amount or the number of magnitude 8 earthquakes and above um, from 1990 to 2017. And what's really interesting is if you look on the website, there's this video where it kind of shows you where the earthquake and when it takes place uh, over the last 100 years. And um, the different magnitude of earthquakes are colored differently. And what you find is as you get closer to the year 2000, um, the earthquakes start increasing in frequency and magnitude. So for about 90 years, they periodically happen. And then when you get closer to 2000, it just, it just happens very frequently. And then you see like um, uh, high magnitude earthquakes taking place. And they're really condensed over the last 20, 25 years, uh, 20 years. Now, Many of you would remember uh, the earthquake that took place in Christchurch. That was a very significant, uh, significant earthquake that took place. Um, and and there are earthquakes that have taken place in Japan, in different places, uh, whether uh, in the in the uh, Indian Ocean. But NBC News reported back in 2014, between 2004 and 2014, 18 earthquakes with magnitudes of 8.0 or or more rattled subduction zones around the globe. That's an increase of 265% over the average rate of the previous century, which saw, 80, uh, which saw 71 great quakes, according to a report to the annual meeting of the Geological Society um, of America. So Jesus highlights events in nature. And what's interesting to me is that scientists know that the implications of what's happening is significant. 
and even the non-scientific community is raising awareness of what's happening around the globe. Um, I don't know how many of you remembered Leonardo DiCaprio's um, Oscar speech like two years ago. And it's two years ago, so I don't even know if that, it was that big of a deal. But I thought it was really interesting because Leonardo DiCaprio has been, nominating, has been nominated for an Oscar up until that point six times. And he lost every single time. So you imagine this poor guy, he's like has this illustrious acting career and just can't take home a, can't take home a, 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 an Oscar. And um, finally he wins. And my question, I think everybody is wondering, how is he going to respond? What's he going to say? What's he going to do? So he gets up on stage. He tells his thank yous to everyone. And then he says, climate change is real. He starts talking about the environment. It's like you have the whole world paying attention to you and you're going to talk about the thing that's most important to your heart and he talks about global warming. And I thought this is so interesting. Even the non-scientific community recognizes, hey, something is happening to planet Earth that we cannot fully explain, but we need to pay attention to. And so he actually talks about, um, he talks about this important thing. And today I want to highlight that um, when it comes to the environment, when it comes to um, events in nature, they can cause concern and they're mentioned in the Bible. But really, Jesus highlights this because he wants us to know something significant is happening here. The implications of this are important. So yes, the fact that they are happening are important and we need to figure out how can we slow this down or how can we even reverse this. But at the same time, Jesus is saying, listen, the implications of these significant uh, events in nature uh, are important. Think about the implications. So here's the next aspect that Jesus highlights in his prophecy. Or here's the next aspect that I'm going to highlight in this prophecy. Go back. Okay. Um, so that's prophecies about politics or international conflict. So Matthew chapter 24, verses 6 and 7 says, And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars, for a nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. See, conflict can be very difficult to define. Um, I could point out the Middle East and show different casualties that have taken place as a result of armed conflict um, and, or the ongoing political conflict between the U.S. and North Korea or the U.S. and Russia. Uh, but how do you objectively tell if things are getting better or worse? And so I found this really interesting survey, and it's called the Global Peace Index. I'm curious, have any of you come across the Global Peace Index? So basically, there's a survey company that measures peace in every single country in the world, and they give them a score. And so uh, the report states how they rate peace, um, whether it's from... Uh, nations that are militarized or measuring safety and security or measuring ongoing conflict. And what happens is um, this company, um, they interview uh, business consultants, business experts, and ask them, hey, in, or excuse me, actually, that, that's different. Excuse me. They measure militarization, security, and ongoing conflict. I'm jumping ahead of myself. So the average level of global peacefulness has declined, according to the Global Peace Index, for the fourth consecutive year, falling by 0.27% in 2017. And so 92 countries deteriorated, deteriorated while only 71 improved. And I think that's it's a really interesting indicator. And uh, when, if you read this actual survey, they're really frustrated with the fact that they've put all this data together saying, hey, 
Like, we are not a peaceful world, and yet it isn't fully uh, changing things. So the next area that I'm going to highlight in regards to this prophecy, in regards to Jesus' prophecy, are prophecies around society. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 to 5, the Bible says, But know this, that in the last days perilous times will come. For men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanders without self-control, brutal despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power. There's a really long list of bad things that are happening. And so what's highlighted here is that um, Paul writes that in the end times, there's going to be more crime, more corruption, more religion, but less loving, less holiness, less mercy. There are a couple statistics that I found interesting. Uh, one was the number of shootings in secondary schools from 1940. And this is, these are global statistics, um, not just statistics from America. But if you look at the number of occurrences of shootings that have taken place over the last 60, 70 years, it's really an incredible, astonishing uh, statistic uh, where you were kind of left wondering, um, why is this happening? Why is this happening? If you look at um, crime statistics in Australia, and what I want to highlight is uh, specifically um, abuse stats in, in Australia. And so it says one in five women have, have experienced sexual violence. On average, at least one woman a week is killed by a partner or former partner in Australia. Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander women experience violence at higher rates than non-Indigenous women. Of these women who experience violence, more than half have children in their care. Now, I want to highlight, there are stats in regards to homicide, kidnapping, and theft. And all of these uh, are in decline, which is good news. But when it comes to sexual assault, it seems to be increasing. And I just find that's really interesting that in some areas, there's improvement. And in other areas, there is um, not improvement. Every year, thank you. Every year, um, Transparency International gathers assessments and surveys uh, business people, and they rank a hundred countries by their perceived levels of public sector corruption. Uh, let me read that one more time because I probably write too fast. So basically, Transparency International they rank a hundred countries and they ask. Um, professionals in the public sector to rank corruption um, uh, in their countries. Now, what's interesting is that Australia ranked 13 in a list consisting of 180 countries, which is really good. It means that Australia is not corrupt uh, compared to the rest of the world. Having said that, Australia did drop six positions since 2012, which shows that uh, there is a degree of corruption in this country that affects um, this place. So the report is put together and they, uh, it's put together um, on perceived levels of public sector corruption. So each country is given a score between zero and a hundred, zero being highly corrupt and a hundred being very clean. So out of 180 countries, only 53 countries score above 50. So if you think about that, 
that's like 127 countries fail, right? If this is an exam, they've failed. That means that the vast majority of the world is considered really corrupt. And as time goes by, the stats show that the problem of corruption is not really getting better. But what is getting better is the willingness of journalists to go and risk their lives to report on what's happening. And what I, find that, what I found that was really kind of shocking about this is that it's saying um, due to the corruption that's happening in these countries, one journalist is killed every week in a highly corrupt country. So this idea of corruption partially explains what's happening in the world when you see extreme poverty, when you see extreme starvation, when you see extreme famine. Notice here um, in Matthew chapter 24, verse 7, um, Jesus says there will be famines, there will be hunger. There's a hunger statistic here. Um, it says that 795 million people don't have enough to live a healthy life. Now, if you think about how many people there are in the world, this isn't quite, uh, this might be one-seventh of the world's population. But the reason why this is interesting to me is that there are enough resources, there are enough money, there are enough willing people to actually get rid of hunger. But the reality is that it's not happening and so there's something in society that's uh, prohibiting um, these people to get the health, the food that they need. <clears throat> the next aspect of prophecy that I'm going to highlight is the idea of pestilence or disease. Uh, Jesus says in Matthew chapter 24, verse 7, there will be pestilence. The World Health Organization puts out a statistic that uh, labels the top 10 reasons for death. And if you look at the top 10 reasons for death, you'll see heart disease, stroke, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, lung cancer, diabetes. And as you look at the list, you're going to find that murder is not on the list. Natural causes of death is not on the list. War is not on the list. And so it's really interesting that disease is the number one killer of humanity in the world. And the reason why this is interesting is because our health, our knowledge of health, the technology that's available to us is actually increasing the longevity of life. Like we have the knowledge to live better quality lives, but the reality is that we're not globally. And so I just think it's interesting that the majority of death is preventable in the world. The majority of death is preventable in the world. Next, Jesus gives these prophecies concerning religion. So in Matthew chapter 24, verses 5 and 11, it says, For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and deceive many. Then many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. The world has witnessed its share of false prophets and messiah-like figures in recent years. And just to name a few, um, Jim Jones is probably a really well-known figure in the U.S. And to summarize what happened, uh, this individual became a prominent religious figure. And he convinced almost a thousand people to travel down to South America uh, to a place that he called Jonestown, and they kind of occupied this encampment. 
And what happened is there were different families of those members, um, or different families of Jim Jones's church, um, where they were saying, hey, we haven't seen our family members. They're not contacting us. We're really concerned. And so what's happened is that if you have almost a 1,000 U.S. citizens in a different part of the world, uh, the U.S. government was like, okay, we need to do something. And so they sent um, a congressman, uh, Leo Ryan, who took a crew from NBC uh, with him to kind of um, document what was happening in Jonestown. And as they were in Jonestown, there were a few people that came up to them and said, hey, we really want to go home. Can we come with you? And so as they talked to Jim Jones, he said, yeah, you can go, and didn't put up a fight. But as they were boarding the plane, Jim Jones sent a militia after them, and basically the militia gunned down about half of the group. And so this was a very, very significant time of of U.S. history because what ended up happening is as the plane left, Jim Jones knew the government's going to come after me, and he basically – distributed uh, cyanide in Kool-Aid, and he had the whole group drink Kool-Aid, and a 1,000 people committed mass suicide. And this is men, women, children. It was the largest number of U.S. citizens that have died in one spot up until 9-11. And that was like a really, really big deal. And it was all because people followed this one religious figure. And so... um, If you ever catch me saying, hey, let's start start a camp out in Timbuktu or wherever, like just anyway, (laughs) like it's it's just crazy to me that it's for religious reasons that these people move to a different country for this guy. Okay, next is David Koresh, uh, who is in charge of the Waco cult. Um, He told his followers that he was Jesus, and he led his followers into a gunfight with federal agents in Waco, Texas. Uh, Later, the FBI would storm the compound, and they found 79 people dead. Once again, men, women, children. And here's a man who started a cult claiming um, he was divine. I don't know how many of you are familiar with this individual. Uh, His name is um, Jose, uh, Jose Luis de Jesus Miranda. And uh, this guy is interesting because I think he's one of the most influential people, or he used to be one of the most influential people who claimed to be Jesus himself. And uh, this man ran a ministry uh, that boasted television stations, hundreds of churches, and over millions of dollars in donations every single year. And he basically said, I am God. And notice on his little lapel here or on his vest, he's got this thing called 666, uh, 666, and he basically – he told his members to tattoo 666 on their bodies, and a lot of them have done that. And so they now have this tattoo, and he's saying, hey, look, usually we associate the number 666 with the Antichrist, but that's a mistranslation. It just means there's a new Christ. I am him. Believe in me. And people did. Now, what happened is that um, he died in 2013. And so can you imagine what these thousands of followers would think? Because, hey, if, if he is Jesus, then he should be immortal. And so it took, it took a long time for the leadership of that religious organization, organization to actually say he is dead. Because people didn't believe it, and there was all sorts of controversy around um, this man's death. And so there are different people who have claimed to be Jesus, um, really tricking a lot of uh, well-meaning, honest people. So 
when it comes to the prophecies of the end time, Jesus um, really talks about really important aspects of nature, politics, society, and religion. Um, notice it says here in Mark chapter 13, verse 8, For nation will rise up against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These things are merely the, be- the beginning of birth pangs. Um, the Bible talks about these incredible events in a specific manner. And the reason why um, it's described this way is because I think sometimes we can look at these events and say, well, this has been happening since the beginning of time. So why does it matter now? Like it's easy to give predictions uh, that revolve around these vague concepts because, yeah, like there is conflict. Yeah, there is famine. Yeah, there are earthquakes. It's been happening all, uh, since, since forever. And Jesus here gives this um, description saying, hey, it's like birth pangs. Um, I've never um, had a baby, but I've stood next to someone who has. And when it comes to contractions, they increase in frequency and intensity. And so the idea isn't that um, they are, have happened or are happening. The fact is that it is increasing. Um, these things are happening more regularly, and it's getting worse. And so the implications here is that Jesus is saying these signs are important because it shows that there's this incredible promise that's going to happen. Um, and that's the fact that there is going to be an end to the bad that's going to happen, and God is going to bring a solution. We'll talk about that more in just a moment. In Matthew chapter 24, verses 12 to 14, Um, notice what it says here. It says, and because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold, but he who endures to the end shall be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world. So in the end, the world events are going to, are clearly very discouraging, but the point is that there's a reason for hope. And the reason why there's a reason for hope is because Jesus says that love will prevail. Goodness will prevail. In other words, things are getting worse and worse. But the point is, simultaneously, things are going to get better and better. In a time when it's so easy to give up hope and say, you know what? There's so many bad things that are happening. Forget it. And different people respond differently. But if I'm honest with myself, if I know there's no hope, I tend to give up. Last time, I I mentioned that I run to catch the train a lot of times because I'm running late, right? And if I think there's hope... Maybe the train was delayed by one minute. I'll keep running. But if I see that train pass me, I'm kind of like, okay, forget Like, there's no hope. And, and Jesus kind of gives this message. He says, listen, yes, there is lawlessness. Yes, there are incredibly devastating things that are happening. But don't give up hope. Endure in love, and then you will see the fruition of a great promise. I love the fact that in this verse, it highlights the fact that love is going to motivate goodness. It motivates the spreading of the gospel. And what I want to state is that, yes, love motivates the gospel, but love is the gospel. The gospel is not this message of hate. It's not a message of condemnation. It's an enduring message of love that is motivated by love. And it will conquer there are several things that happen around the world that give me hope um 
One is the Clinton Global Initiative, and basically it's this initiative that gathers all the different world leaders to talk about how to increase education, how to increase healthcare, how to increase infrastructure, and they're really, really focusing on how to create peace, how to, how to help the world. And uh, what's interesting to me is uh, you can go on YouTube and watch uh, Clinton actually give talks at CGI, uh, which is what it's called, and at the end of his talks, he always says, God bless you. Now, I'm not highlighting Bill Clinton to be like, he's the greatest Christian ever, or yeah, he's one of us. What I do want to highlight is the fact that he's organized this incredible organization or this incredible initiative, and he's really bringing people's attention to God at the end of his talks. And he's just saying, God bless you, right? The thing for him, um, he wants to communicate, I want you to know God's goodness, And that's incredible to me, regardless of his history or who he is. I don't know him personally, but I love the fact that he highlights God's goodness. Another organization that I find is pretty incredible is the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. And, you know, this foundation goes around and talks to billionaires. And the challenge is, uh, the, the, the challenge that Bill Gates has laid down is, he said, listen, I want to challenge you to donate 50% of your um, wealth to charity. By the time you die, donate 50% of your wealth to charity. And so he's created this club called the Billionaire Donors Club. And to get into this club, you have to be a billionaire. And you have to commit to, to donating half of your money to charity. And, and you can actually read the list of people that are online who are on this, who are in Bill, uh, Bill Gates's Billionaire Donor Club. It's actually like, what a cool exclusive club to be a part of. Yeah, like being rich is one thing, but making a commitment, I'm giving my money away. And so you have people like Warren Buffett, who basically has said, I'm going to donate 99% of my money and my wealth to um, to um, to charity. And so he actually donated $60 billion to the Bill and, uh, Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Can you, imagine, can you imagine $1 billion? That's 999, uh, uh, 100, uh, it's 9999999 minus 1, right? Like, the, it's just, that is an incredible astrono- astronomical figure. Anyway. And move past money. <laughs> um, it's really encouraging. And the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation has actually re- uh, eradicated polio in the country of India. Can you imagine being able to put that on your resume? I wiped out polio in a country that has over a billion people in it. That is incredible. The gospel is also spreading around the world, whether it's through internet, whether it's through television, whether it's through radio. There are uh, the the church Christianity is getting more effective at sharing the love of Jesus. What I find is interesting. I already read this. What I find is interesting is that um, Stephen Hawking says that there's a solution to the world's problems, and notice what Stephen Hawking's solution is. He says it will be difficult enough to avoid disaster in the next hundred years. So in other words, he's saying, listen, something is going to happen in the next hundred years for sure that's going to really hurt humanity. It'll be difficult enough to avoid disaster in the next hundred years, let alone the next thousand or million. Our only chance of long-term survival is not to remain inward-looking on planet Earth, but to spread out into space. 
Now, if there was a silly person who was just into writing science fiction novels who said, the solution to Earth's problems is space travel, I would kind of be like, yeah, you're kind of crazy. But Stephen Hawking is like one of the most brilliant people of our century, yeah, of our century, a brilliant, brilliant person. And he's saying, hey, if you look for a long-term solution to Earth's problems, it's not found on planet Earth. We have to figure out space travel. Like, what a science fiction-y solution to the problems of planet Earth. And yet, that's what he's saying. God's solution is very similar to Earth's problems. In John chapter 14, verses 1 to 3, Jesus says, I go to prepare a place for you. I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. So here's this promise where Jesus says, I'm going to come again a second time, and I'm going to take you to a better place. Jesus is saying, Jesus' solution is Stephen Hawking's solution. So the second coming of Christ, it has three specific characteristics that I just want to spend a moment on. Now, if you want to remember how to understand and remember what the second coming of Christ is going to be like, think of PVA or PVA glue. And if you remember this, hopefully the idea will stick. So the first one is that uh, Jesus, Jesus' second coming is going to be uh, visible, uh, excuse me, physical. In Acts chapter 1, verse 11, it says, They said also, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. And so Jesus left in a physical body. He's coming back in a physical body. Jesus' second coming is going to be visible. Behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him. Revelation 1, verse 7. And finally, Jesus' second coming is going to be audible. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 16 to 18, it says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trump of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. So Jesus specifically, in different parts of the New Testament, or excuse me, uh, I should say different parts of the New Testament highlight the manner or the characteristics of the second coming of Christ. And the question is, why is this important? And the reason why is because it is the sign of Jesus. If you look at Matthew chapter 24, verses 30 and 31, it says, Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. Now think about the context of Matthew chapter 24, verses 30 and 31. Jesus has repeatedly mentioned there is deception. There is false Christs. And so if there are false Christs, how do I know who the genuine is? If someone comes and says, hey, I am the son of God, believe in me, how do I differentiate? And here it mentions there's a sign that lets us know that Jesus is the genuine one. Notice here it says, then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with the great sound of a trumpet and they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. So the sign of Jesus is the second coming of Christ. 
And if we looked at the verse before, notice it says the dead in Christ are going to meet Jesus in the air. Jesus never touches the ground. And so if there are people running around saying, I'm Jesus, believe in me, the point is like, hey, you know, my Bible actually says that at the second coming of Christ, um, or excuse me, my Bible says that the sign of Jesus is the second coming of Christ. And so if you're in front of me, it can't be you because Jesus has a specific identity that's connected to this idea of the second coming. The second coming is important because it's an indicator of truth. It's the ultimate fulfillment of every promise given by God. It is God's solution to suffering. It is God's solution to the loss of loved ones. And he says, this idea, this event is forever connected to me. Nobody is allowed to counterfeit the second coming of Christ because it's such a significant thing to God. So as we look around the world events, as we look at the things that are happening in nature, the things that are happening in society, the things that are happening in politics, may we be encouraged by the fact that God has a plan and the point that these events occur are to let us know he is going to come again. There is a solution, and God is going to make the wrong right. May God encourage you as you think upon these things. We've got a closing song before we finish today, and I'm just going to invite you to watch this video and to uh, consider um, the message of the music. Father God, we look forward to a day where we truly will be home with you, and we just want to pray that in the midst of where we are right now uh, in history, that you would give us hope, encouragement, endurance, that you would teach us to love and to show your love to the world around us, um, that we would be um, lights of hope in this dark place, um, that we would uh, be able to um, give an answer of, of the different questions that are on people's minds as to why these things are happening. May we live out that truth in our lives um, and bring attention to you. We pray this in your name. Amen. We now have lunch um, out in the back, and so we hope you've brought your appetite and you're hungry. Um, so please stay and join us for lunch. That way uh, we can get to know you better as well and spend some time together um, as a community. Um, so thank you for joining us. and. Um, May God bless you.